Welcome to the Self-Made Expert Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Morgan, and I love speaking with people who are cultivating economically valuable expertise outside the world of academia and the licensed professions. Some of these conversations end up on this podcast. You can learn more about my work helping indie consultants build an expertise moat at philipmorganconsulting.com. Jim Thornton, welcome to the Self-Made Expert. Oh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you uh, used to be an SEO guy, which almost <laughs> sometimes feels like there's this sort of caste system of internet marketing. And I don't, I don't know where, actually I'm curious where that would be in the caste system of internet marketing. But there was a time when I would have felt that like, that was one of the lower castes of internet marketing. Anyway, um, you don't describe yourself quite as an SEO guy now. Jim, who are you and what do you do? Well, and I appreciate the cast system analogy because I think that's a really good, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good framing for how people get treated uh, in different roles in, in marketing. Oh, interesting. Okay, I want to hear more about yeah. that. Well, I mean, it, it's maybe more like goes a little too deep into to some marketing talk, but just generally, I think of, you know, trends and times changing. You have your analytics guys and they're able to make more decisions around data or able to use data to sort of inform the decisions that they're trying to make or recommendations that they're making. And that's easier with multiple stakeholders, right? You can kind of be the tiebreaker. So they get more, more power than maybe they should. Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, uh, SEOs definitely, I think, have gotten a pretty bad rep being an unregulated industry that came up quite quickly and there's a lot of money in it. Um, yeah. But I will also say I was, you know, looking at Google Trends this morning and Googling like the topics of search engine optimization versus digital marketing versus web design and content marketing and things like that. And SEO is still just the at least search interest on it is so much higher than than anything else that's so interesting so, okay so yeah, and they do so well uh a lot of seos do so well so it's interesting i'll yeah. display my ignorance is it the brahmin who are at the top of the hindu caste system <laughs> uh, you don't know either i can tell yeah, from your I do, laugh i do not know no <laughs> okay so the internet uh, marketing the digital marketing caste system you remember when the cro people were like at the top of that caste system they're still kind of at the top they're just rebranded as analytics guys i feel like okay so they still have that kind of that cachet that that sometimes earned, sometimes unearned uh, deference. Well, I think they went through something similar that we went through as SEOs, which is you could point to short-term gains, but when you added up a lot of the little tricks that you would do on a website that would win A-B tests, you sort of optimized yourself towards just these really weird user experiences on sites. I think of like booking.com where there's just so much artificial scarcity built into, you know, four people looked at this in the last hour and, mm -hmm. you know, there's only two, you know, two days left for your, you know, search criteria and stuff. And so I think that 
it's interesting how you can do CRO, you can continuously win A-B tests, and then you can get to the end of the year and say, oh, we didn't really generate a whole lot more revenue than we were expecting to, or the revenue that we did generate were, you know, lower quality customers from, you know, like a lifetime value standpoint or, or just right. overall lead quality. Yeah. I think this is attributed to Seth Godin. You know, if you just continually A-B tested the whole internet and kind of delegated all your decision making <laughs> to that, you would end up with a porn site. Every website would be a porn site. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's a nice, uh, it's a nice concept. That sounds about right. So, I mean, you said weird user experience, and that kind of implies there's a perspective that says, from this perspective, this looks weird. What's the perspective you're coming from when you say, I mean, well, when you said what you said, but I might translate it as unconstrained A-B testing <laughs> leads you to really weird places. Weird, weird in what yeah. way? What's weird? I think whenever you optimize for a metric and get tunnel vision on that metric, then you're stepping further away from optimizing for like a human's experience. Okay. So it just, you know, you move these little needles or you add this, you know, you add like the little pop-up that shows up in the corner where it's like Joe in Houston, Texas bought this an hour ago. Right. And you're just like, well, yeah, I mean, that was great when it first came out for a certain type of user and you're trying to optimize for them buying a certain thing, but you're business isn't going to live and die on that and you're not going to like achieve great heights thinking that way so you're just going to kind of get weirder and weirder if you're doing more and more of those things over time because their half-life isn't good i'm reminded of goodhart's law I'll, which i'll read from straight from wikipedia <laughs> any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse once pressure is placed upon it for control purposes so that gets elaborated and people who talk about, you know, management. And you know, as soon as you set something as the target, it people will game the system and it's not a good target anymore because it'll it'll sort of undermine your ultimate purpose, which is something else. So you give, you know, salespeople a target in terms of just defined in terms of unit sales and they'll start selling things at a loss is one example that's given of that. It sounds like this is a manifestation of Goodhart's law. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm trying to remember the name. There's another law in physics where the observer effect, is that what it's called? Mm. There's like a more formal term for it. But it means that when you basically shine a light on something, the light photons hit it and then and then change it. So you can't actually observe it in its natural state without Mm -hmm. without influencing it. That right. sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that that's sometimes what's happening when you use analytical instruments to try to optimize some piece of a website? I guess so. I don't know. I mean, it's a really good question. I don't know. I I I think of the issues that happen it are, you know, it's easy to install Google Analytics on your website. It's easy to look at some numbers. You can kind of make some reasonable assumptions or biased you, you know come to some based on your own bias uh mm -hmm. some conclusion about it but if you're not also doing the qualitative work to 
add color or context to those numbers, which is really hard and labor intensive work to do that, that nobody really has time for. We haven't really made time for yet, like in aggregate and organizations, I think that we end up, yeah, we just sort of end up with maybe a little bit of what you're saying there. So from a career perspective, you were born into the SEO cast of the digital marketing cast system. How do you describe yourself now? So, I mean, I would still say I'm an SEO and I do still say that in some places, uh, but I would describe the work that I do and the sort of chosen specialization direction as I organize, you know, unwieldy amounts of expert content and I try to solve for the problems associated with websites that have too much content, have been really focused on creating content for years and years and have not have not thought too much about how to curate that content on their website in such a way that, you know, it provides a nice user experience and people can can find what they're trying to find easily. That's another member of our constellation of the, the growing um, digital marketing cast system. I, I love this analogy too much, I think. Um, the content marketer. So when, well, give, what's the timeline here, Jim? Like when did you start calling yourself an SEO and doing that sort of work? SEO. Um, How far back does this go for you? 10 years. Okay. Yeah. About 10 years, maybe nine. Yeah. That seems 2011. Like, okay. You've seen enough of this world. When did we start drowning in content on the internet? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, there's a guy, Mark Schaefer, who has a blog called Businesses Grow. And in 2014, he predicted this concept of a term he coined called content shock, uh -huh. which was that the amount of content on the internet would surpass um, our limited you know, human ability to consume that content. And then that happened in 2016. We crossed that threshold. So I think sometime after that and then you know the future is unevenly distributed right so mm -hmm. there are definitely still industries where like they have not experienced that yet and content marketing's a really good idea for them to start doing uh but generally you know we we kind of all have this problem if we've been working in content marketing for for any number of years now i i feel like my experience might be representative or I might be really out of touch. I know in Grapes of Wrath, one of the characters like mostly didn't have enough food, but occasionally would like cook a whole pig and eat it. I don't think that was, I don't, I don't know which character that was, but I feel like, you know, anytime I encounter quote unquote content that I'm that character, I've just eaten a whole pig and now someone is like, you want to eat some more? And I, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> that's literally the feeling for me, but I, oh, that's interesting. how common do you think that is that reaction I, to quote unquote content? Not, not the sort of, I'm sorry, I'm talking over you. Not the kind no. of like, I feel like there's a level of content that's like, you know, you go to the DMV and someone's got a radio on in the background on talk radio and that seems fine for that kind of job. And there's just this ambient sound and I feel like maybe Twitter's like that for me. I'm not always, I don't always have the website up and I'm certainly not always looking at it, but it has this kind of ambient background noise 
relationship to my cognition. But then there's, you know, emails that show up in my inbox or these sort of offers to more seriously consume quote unquote content. And, and that's when I feel like I want to throw up because I'm already over full. What's the normal, how do normal humans react to this? Uh, so you're saying just from like the standpoint of when you're consuming content, like you feel sort of overwhelmed and burned out on yeah. just all the content that shows up in your, in your inbox as an example. Yeah. And it, it, there's some time in me, I don't know when it, when it was, I'm kind of amazed that you named 2016 and I wanted to joke, oh, that, so it's Donald Trump's fault that mm. we're, anyway, um, you named a specific date for me. I don't know when it was, but a, a switch flipped. And my first reaction used to be when I saw content that was topically relevant to me was, yeah, I should check this out. There might be something here that's worthwhile. Now my first reaction is a, a very negative, pessimistic reaction of this is probably going to be a waste of my time. And I don't know when that switch happened, but it feels like that's kind of what we're talking about here with, what did you say, content shock? Yeah, for me, because I can't really speak for anyone else, uh, yeah. but for me, I think I was listening to a lot of podcasts until about two years ago, and you know, at maybe three years ago now, and I just one day stopped, just altogether stopped listening to sort yeah. of like business business advice related podcasts. Um, was that a conscious decision or? Because I, no. rem I remember when I started drinking coffee black, I used to load it up with sugar and milk and stuff. And I was at a friend's wedding and they were serving coffee and I was like, I'll have mine black just out of the blue. I never would have done that before. And I don't know why I did, but from that day forward, it was just like a light switch flipped. Curious, you know, when you stop listening to business podcasts, how did, why did that happen? How, what was, what was going on? So I didn't, I didn't make any sort of specific decision. I think in maybe one week's time, I heard from a couple different sources, someone being interviewed for a book and it was the same book and they yeah. were just sort of on the book circuit of, yeah. you know, the different podcasts that I listened to. And so I heard the same talking points a few times you, and I just you, thought, you'll, you'll do that one of these days, by the way, oh, I <laughs> you'll be that guy. That. <laughs> I want to be that guy. I really do. <laughs> I really want to be that guy. Uh, but yeah, for me, I, it was a combination of that and then sort of feeling like I found what I was looking for in picking a direction. And this is like totally unplanned and not not yeah. a, attempting to plug you at all. But doing the expertise incubator was, I, th I think, a real turning point because I went from oh, what should I do? I'm such a generalist. Uh, I do all these different things and I'm sort of getting burned out on on how generalized I was because I couldn't even really describe what I did to someone when they would ask. I was so generalized. And then um, I got some clarity on here. here's a direction that, that feels good uh, and mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm making consistent progress and I can see that I'm making progress. And so I'm happy with this and I don't really need to, you know, on my next run, listen to, I'm not, I'm not going to name names, but sure. you know, listen to one of these podcasts that I had been listening to for years. So it was like an appetite that was satiated? I think so. I, I think maybe at least for the, the reason I found myself listening to, to those types of podcasts at that point. And I'm getting something similar with the newsletter stuff. I've got a lot of newsletters in my inbox and it, I'm just switching to using a different email now. 
<laughs> like I'm just love not it. Even, you just yeah. I do that <laughs> with phone numbers sometimes. <laughs> oh, that I would love to do that. I get so many because we, you know, we did the Yex thing. I put my cell phone on for our business for our name address phone number, and I get just like the weirdest text messages and and email outreach. A small so, yeah. small life hack. Maybe a lot of people would be horrified at this. Um, I changed phone numbers when we moved to Taos and forgot at first to set up voicemail and never did anything different. At some point I was like, wow, I just get so much less annoying, you know, stuff on my phone. And then I thought for a half second about why, and I was like, oh, I just did the best thing ever. (laughs) Anybody who contacts me knows, anybody who knows me and wants to contact me knows they should not call and leave a voice message. So I wasn't cutting off some valuable source of value in my life anyway. If you ever get yeah, to I would, manifest that I wonder, dream. Yeah. I wonder if you can just turn off voicemail, because I would totally do that. I don't listen to them, and it gets me in so much trouble sometimes. Yeah, people just can't. They literally can't leave a voicemail if the box isn't set up. Right. Well, I like how Brad handles it. Brad up, uh, or um, I'm sorry, Brad Ferris, uh-huh. like a mutual friend. Yeah. He, If you call his number, it's sort of like you got to press two for for Brad or something uh-huh. like that, or press 102 for Brad. And I think that acts as a nice filter for for bots and, you know, adds a little uh, bit of friction. These are not very smart bots. I mean, maybe for every human being, there is a story or will be at some, someday a story. <laughs> like, you know, when did you quit this thing? For me, what I started doing was reading more what I would think of as primary sources or stuff that... No one has made into an, e- an email or a podcast, but it's research or it's, you know, adjacent information from adjacent fields that I see feeding into the work I'm doing. Did you do some kind of substitution like that or replace, you know, the quote caloric input of the content you were consuming with other types of content? I did start, so when I, I tried to get away from SEO with the specialization in, you know, content strategy and website content strategy and and organizing lots of content and then coming across some of the problems there they were actually kind of similar to some of the problems that i imagine google had in the 90s mm-hmm. trying to make sense of large amounts of web pages online and so i did end up reading through some older patents and really trying to understand how the the page rank algorithm sort of like a you know what what made google search results so much better than other Mm -hmm. search engines at the time yeah um how it worked and then went back even further and looked at where you know some of the the seeds for the page rank algorithm which was like another one that was for citations in the 70s and there was like some some russian stuff to look at how they yeah how they measured influence uh in a network of information represented as pages or you know papers or whatever Mm -hmm. uh and then that turned into a real interest in network analysis as a as a method for analyzing websites uh based on their internal linking structure and then also just looking at how words you know, semantically shared meaning across pages and how those pages might be related, even though there was no explicit connection drawn between them. Uh I think in that way, in the getting focused, 
in a direction or focused on a problem, it became a lot harder to find any real, like you were saying, you know, non-primary sources right. um, to make sense of to make sense of that or or to be able to go deeper on anything other than, you know, there's maybe one guy in the world of SEO that does a nice job of reading the Google patents and then turning them into blog posts that are uh, pretty digestible for most SEOs. And uh, his name's uh, Bill Slowski. Um, hmm. But besides him, there's really, yeah, you kind of have to go to the source to, to understand what you're trying to understand. I imagine that yeah. goes for a lot of things. Right. We're talking about, you know, the value of content. And I wonder, I, I wonder because this is my sort of pattern is uh, to maybe as often as I can, I mean, I, there's, I wouldn't be able to do this perfectly, but to kind of start interrogating what's happening close to home with this new perspective. So if the perspective for me is, um, you know, content shock, there's, there's too much content, there's more, or there's more content than is needed, or if that's the perspective, then I apply that to myself. What am I doing with content? So <laughs> do you do that also, Jim, where you're like, huh, I'm in the business of, you know, helping people who have made a lot of content do something better with it. Uh, maybe we should just stop making, do you ever think, that's what I should have asked. Do you ever think we should maybe just stop making content, all of us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a setup for you to come back with a more nuanced uh, perspective <laughs> in case that wasn't obvious. I mean, I have stopped writing articles for a couple months now, mm. and I really miss it, but I do feel like I've had some things stewing in my mind that that would mm. be good to formalize through writing. I don't know. I I don't I don't think not writing is the answer, but when I look at like taking that content shock example, like just the category for content shock on that guy Mark Schaefer's website, uh, it has like 40 articles in it and then there's a tag for content shock and that has like 11 articles in it. And then content shock is mentioned on like 80 some pages on his site. And uh -huh. so, and that's just like one topic on his site. So you're saying it's just it's so overwhelming content shock about content shock. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like a little meta, but what I would love to see is just, Hey, here's, I've written a lot about this and here's my comprehensive treatment on the topic. And you know, any of those articles that deserve to continue to live on because they have something unique and valuable to say about the topic that's maybe tangential should get to continue living and be linked to from that primary source, you know, that canonical page. And that that's the best way that I know to solve for it now. And I feel kind of, it feels kind of chintzy to say that because it feels just very like HubSpot, hey, you should create a hub and spoke pattern with pillar pages for your content and link to other really. And it just, so it, it, in a sense, it is sort of the recommendation that I have right now. I don't think it's the best answer. I feel like I'm still working on the answer. There is, is something like that, but it bothers me that I don't, yeah, that I don't have a good answer there that I feel confident about that doesn't sound like something that you could also maybe read on 
a HubSpot blog post about how you should, you know, improve your blog. Yeah, I hear that tension. You're saying maybe that there are usable tools and patterns out there. Like those don't need to be invented, but you were, I mean, and, and maybe that, is that what's dissatisfying about it is, I'm not saying, oh, you're you some, you egomaniac, you just, because you didn't invent it, you know, it's not invented here <laughs> syndrome, but maybe it's sort of like, well, the answer is, a, sorry, it's not a sexy new answer. Like the answer has been around for a while. Are you asking me if, if I think that's it, that the answer has been around for a while or? Well, I, I feel like I, that was a leading question that wasn't very flattering. I mean, is it okay that the answer might be five or 10 years old? I don't know what, I don't know if that's the right answer. It doesn't feel like a good enough answer to me. Oh, um, okay. Why not? It's still linear. The The answer to how do you solve this problem of, let's say you have 80 pages referencing something, you've got 40 pages that are, are categorized with that topic and another 10 that are, you know, tagged with that topic, the same term you know some of it's simple and the answer has been discovered long ago like you should consolidate your category and your tag for the same topic and you should Uh you know have a primary page that so when someone says what is content shock they they land on that page not some other page that you know is is tangential about it Mm -hmm. but it when you create that page, the user still has to read through that page to get to where they potentially want to go to to dive deeper on the topic. And so they're stuck having to read something mm-hmm. um, to get somewhere else and then potentially get somewhere else to ultimately get where they want to go. And it, it has to start feeling like a rabbit hole for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I think we have, they're, they're different personalities but my, you know, my mental model of approaching things like that, I really end up in rabbit holes and I'm like, what was I originally trying to do? Right. And then I think other people are, you know, a lot more apt to just not have the attention span to, to go too far down a rabbit hole or too far away from what they were trying to do. So it feels like there's still not a good answer, right? There's like personalization where you get kind of recommended products and it's based on some data things and sometimes they're good recommendations and sometimes they're not or you you have to spend a lot of time finding something and and they just both don't feel like great answers to me so i feel like the answer is maybe still yet to come how how will that answer be generated like here are the things well backing up i have this theory that a lot of uh so-called best practice with marketing comes from companies that have a software product priced at a subscription level and are suspiciously well aligned with their product, these best practices, so-called best practices. <laughs> That's my very Baroque way of saying, you know, I think people learn about marketing from the marketing pages of SaaS products. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that serves us well. I'm not sure that that's the best source of information, but I mean, the, the original question is like, okay, we've got a sort of partial unsatisfactory answer to how to connect people with the information they're looking for. Where will the better answer come from, you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. The, the marketing either. tools as, you know, the SaaS products as 
the source of education on on best practices problem is that's such a big real problem and that in my mind means that so much of what is considered to be a best practice is dictated by how the product was developed or the inputs for product development and that's a little scary right Um, like to keep picking on hubspot they have so much education and training information and resources and they're all sort of part of a certification process that is very tightly connected to you know you hitting your sales objectives for being a hubspot partner if you're an agency yeah and then those agencies are you know they're resource strapped and so they've got young new people and they're they're just throwing them at uh hubspot courses to train them right and then there's sort of this collective delusion about how marketing is supposed to get done that, yeah, it becomes really hard to turn the tide on that. And so I don't know, to go back to your original question, I don't know how you solve for it in that context. And I'm sort of like feeling a little guilty because I almost feel like that's my goal is to like build a a SaaS um, that's a series of, of tools that help people to better organize their websites right so it's interesting you say that because i can you know imagine (laughs) being wildly successful and just sort of contributing you know the same pollution to the internet and that would be really cool like (laughs) i'd like to be at that like i'd like to have that problem right how do i stop polluting the internet yeah i guess that would be a sort of more noble moral quandary to to be in (laughs) right better better for you i mean there's other places these answers could come from uh you know for all their complexity and combination of good and bad you know google and facebook and other big companies like that they do do real research i think along these lines right i mean they, they do realize at some level despite their dominance if they lose that dominance it will be because they they stop creating value for their their audit, I mean, their, their aggregated audience to use Ben Thompson's terms. Mm. So, um, you know, they're not so out of touch that they don't realize that and they do real research and you've read Google patents, for example, maybe it comes from there or maybe it comes from people like you starting SaaS companies and the cycle of <laughs> marketing disinformation is complete. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like you know, we're, we're sort of talking about innovation in a way. Um, and when you, when you take the sort of SaaS approach to, I want to turn the tide or change the way that things are getting done. And then you also have a bottom line that you have to worry about. You're sort of inherently, you're going to be biased towards, you know, things that benefit your bottom line. And I look at, you know, Google search as a product, they've kind of gone through that where they've run out of market share to grab. And so now they are trying to take it from the rest of the internet, right? Like they're trying to keep all of the traffic that comes through Google that's intending to go to wherever they're trying to get to on the web. And they're just trying to keep them on Google with those insert, you know, mm-hmm. properties of the people also ask and things like that. And so right. ultimately after years and years of them optimizing for that, it, you know, it, it's really not the best experience as far as search engines go anymore. So I don't know. Yeah. That was like totally off topic, but 
the or 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 went off topic but i think that yeah so it sort of has to come down to motives right like it's you're focused on kind of relentlessly focused on the problem and then you're borrowing from all of these different places to collect tools that that feel like they help in in solving that problem in a way that would be beneficial for you know clients and users and yeah I guess another possibility is that the problem never gets solved, right? We do like we were talking about with phone numbers and just we change the phone number except it's it's much bigger than that. And I think you see that, right, where it's like, okay, uh, this is going to totally sweep away the old paradigm and it's a new paradigm and it's, uh, you know, like, chat, <laughs> remember when chatbots promised to solve this problem? Yeah. <laughs> like that. You know, I don't think ever was the claim made the internet's going to be, you know, one big chat bot, but I bet there were some, some startups that came pretty close to that kind of rhetoric about how this was going to displace everything. But that is an option is, you know, the automobile age brought a relief from the problem of horse manure in city streets. It, you know, it, it also, you know, did, did away with a lot of other things too. Maybe there's something like that that will change our relationship to content and content shock. I mean, if you think about how users are solving for it, they're solving for it by subscribing, you know, paid subscriptions to gated content and refining down their inboxes to try to minimize the noise. And then if you think about how we're currently solving for it, on like the organization or, you know, the website content creator side, we can go through and, and re-architect our information architecture. We can use something like chatbots to try to simplify helping users where they need to go. And I do think at some point in the future, machine, I hate to even bring up machine learning, but we will have figured it out, quote unquote, to enough of an extent that we're sort of doing the same thing that happened with what you were saying with, you know, horses and automobiles of mm -hmm. we're kind of creating new problems that we have to deal with, which is sort of trying to remove bias from machine learning outputs. And yeah, we're, we're kind of solving for different problems like we are now, right. With like the age of the internet where we're trying to figure out how do we solve for misinformation mm -hmm. um, when it's so easy for it to spread. Yeah. It's fun to think about. I think so. I have uh, insider information on you because you've been a part of the expertise incubator for a while. So sometimes I like to imagine that you kind of created a a private uh, version of Google search engine <laughs> that you can deploy against a very content heavy website and do some of the same kind of backend work that's happening inside a search engine like Google. I know that's what oversimplifying or over dramatizing maybe what you're doing but can you talk about that stuff that work you've done yeah so i have i don't know how much details worth going into but when i when i started on the journey were you going to say something you've got a level of granularity you're well i was going to say what is i'll tell you what's interesting to me hopefully it works for the listeners too is like you, you, you invested in some learning to support this larger goal that you have. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you kind of walk us through what that was, 
at a re- relatively high level, I suppose. I mean, don't hold back from stuff that's interesting to you, nerdy stuff. But yeah, that's that's what I was going for. So, so you have that term that you used in helping people specialize, which is like try to find a head start if you can. Yeah, and a head start can mean a series of different things. And so I think when I was approaching the problem of content organization, you identified something in me that I didn't, I, I, I didn't really see, which was that I can kind of take a scrappy approach to solving a problem because I've always been, at least as a marketer, I've always been pretty independent. Um, I I don't have a background of working for a firm or anything. So I've always had to kind of figure out how to do things myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you, you pointed that out and some examples and gave me the confidence to say, Oh, well I can, I can kind of apply some of that to, to this, Um, you know, some data scraping experience or developer experience um, to, point down this road of, yeah, basically trying to create a sort of recommendation engine for what to do with your website's pages, which is, you know, in, in effect, what, what a search engine is, right? Like you, you're, you're searching for a topic and it's returning a series of results that it's recommending to you. Right. And so, yeah, so that, and then we had, um, you know, uh, other TEI members, I think someone turned me on to Neo4j, which is like a graph database technology. And I had never heard of graph databases. I had always thought in terms of, you know, spreadsheets and relational databases like SQL and stuff um, mm-hmm. coming from like a WordPress background. And yeah, that was just a lot of fun to explore because basically you can take all different types of data, structured and unstructured and connect it together. And then query it for for interesting uh answers or outputs and then so i i started learning that and i was always real anything database related i was always really bad at i'd always have to get help on that um i'd always get stuck on wordpress development and i never wanted to take a sql course or a php course so i always just sort of was Hmm. kind of a glorified script kitty but um i actually really learned the cipher which is the query language for for this graph database technology and um yeah that just turned me on to so many more questions and directions of of things to learn about so instead of kind of trying to learn about content strategy from the traditional you know take a course on content strategy realm i was got really interested in hey your website as a network of pages that's related in so many different ways and you know your google analytics data is being able to be mapped in and user flows is being able to be mapped in, in in a way that we can query to to paint more of a picture and so yeah i was like reading books on graph algorithms and trying to come up with you know different queries to help me answer really hard to get at questions about about websites i don't know i I maybe that's not a little too detailed or not detailed enough but that's what it's felt like the journey has been it's just been you know like knocking on different doors and and trying to cobble something together that feels like a cohesive approach to to solving the problem of too much content i want to try an idea out on you i'll have to give more background than i would normally want to. So 
yesterday, <laughs> I read this really, I mean, I, I talk about content shock and the kind of negative reaction I feel to, you know, what feels like more of the same and, you know, promises all this new insight and novelty and always feels like a disappointment. But there are, I, I do find things and I'm like, this, this writer, this person, this thinker thinks about things in a way that I find interesting and, and seems to live outside of that world of um, me too, too much content. Matt Clancy is someone who fits that. He has a um, website called newthingsunderthesun.com, and he writes about, uh, broadly, I suppose, innovation, pulls from research and, you know, does the kind of, I think, the, the same level of job you were talking about with that person who looks at Google patents and breaks them down into language normal people can understand. Mm. He published an article, Conservatism in Science, which is using some research to look at at this situation. When there is someone who is very influential and well-known within their little niche field of science, do they kind of, does, does their existence, not them personally, kind of squash innovation by making that subfield less open to new ideas? And it's a bit overstating it to say that squashes innovation, but it could be a contributing factor. It could have a sort of chilling effect on innovation in that field. And he looked at this really interesting um, primary research that looked at a bunch of little tiny sub-niches in the world of science and then ones that all had some superstar uh, researcher. And uh, some of them died early, these superstar researchers, had kind of an untimely death and others lived on. And so they compared those two cohorts to see if the you know, and the ones where the superstar researcher continued to live sort of uh, had some sort of ongoing chilling effect, or if there was some change that was related to the superstar researcher passing away earlier, earlier in life than they might ordinarily. Anyway, <laughs> that's a bunch of setup. Jim, I, I could see someone coming at the same problem and saying, okay, well, what do the current experts in the SEO field say? And let me build on what they've done. It feels like you, even though you're somewhat of an insider to the world of SEO, used a little bit of an outsider perspective. And the outsider perspective, I think, it can be so valuable. I think it, 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 it isn't automatically because if that was the case, then everybody, every stranger who replies to you on Twitter with some, yeah, but have you thought about this, would be really valuable. And it's not <laughs> because if the outsider doesn't have the context their contribution is often not valuable, but it seems like you came at it from a kind of outsider perspective. Maybe I could have just said that and skipped all the setup. What do you think? I do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think what happened, so SEO, you know, it's, it's a little volatile of an industry and you sort of have a, have to have a commitment to just continuous learning in order to keep up with, with everything in one sense. And then in another sense, there's this growing attitude of, hey, black hat SEO, sort of like trying to, you know, trick search engines into ranking you higher mm -hmm. versus white hat SEO, which is sort of trying to earn a higher position. Mm -hmm. um, that white hat has won because Google has gotten sophisticated enough now that they're able to return the better results. 
and we we crossed some imaginary threshold where that seemed to be more true than not. Uh-huh. And we went through like a series of of stages with penalties and you know algorithmic updates and now these like broad core updates that it just it became sort of clear that the easiest thing to do was to sort of focus on you know content marketing as improving the quality of your content and that kind of thing. So but where that's all led us though is so that's that's a that's a roundabout way of saying it's kind of easy to take an outsider's perspective because all you have to do is stop paying attention to SEO for two years and you're suddenly like an outsider. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, uh-huh. And the industry has always had an identity crisis in that sense of, you know, you're resource constrained and you're trying to get immediate results and SEO takes a little bit longer than, than other channels to, to, to see a return anyway. And so there's there's all these different types of and it's it's too complex to explain to um, the typical client who doesn't want to hear about it, which I totally understand. And all of that just sort of ends up or ended up leaving me in a place of feeling like, okay, what are the actual first principles here that we should be relying on? And I had a mentor when I first got into SEO named Eric Ward, who was considered like a one of the best, if not the best link builder, he had like, you know, link building expert. He was ranking for in Google for just the longest time, like probably Mm -hmm. 10 years. Yeah. He was, he had worked with Amazon, um, when they, when they were getting started, um, and was just like an overall nice guy. And he was kind enough to, after hiring him for consulting a couple of times when I was getting started to like, just keep talking to me about stuff. And, and he always took this approach of a link, you should want a link if you would want it if Google never existed. Mm-hmm. And and that just seemed so simple. Yeah. Um and and clearly Google is trying to optimize for those types of links uh and count those types of links and they're trying to suppress uh links that were intended for Google, right? Like that's their sort of their the the war that they've been at for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, that I don't know why I brought him up except to say that it seemed like he did a really nice job of kind of going back to, well, what, what should our assumption, our basic assumption here really be? Yeah. Um, and it, even as an insider, it's for this industry, at least it's kind of easy to see how, how much chaos there is. And so the idea of going to first principles and trying to dive deeper into things to me was comforting if that makes sense. So it was like there was some foundation I could grab onto where I could feel a little bit more confident in what I was talking about than I did, you know, my first seven years of an SEO, which was being the type of person that called myself an SEO, but had actually never read a primary source document um, about it. Got it. Okay. So he kind of modeled for you. You can do this. You can just pretend like you Got have partial amnesia about all the best practices and recommendations and just sort of put forth a big assum- a framing assumption and work from there and, and see where that takes you and it's not going to destroy your career or undermine your credibility. I hadn't thought of it that way. and It resonates to think of it that way. Yeah, yeah. So your overarching framing assumption is what your starting point your 
you know, your, your first principle that you built from? I think it was, it's a really hard question. Like, what did it really boil down to? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard question because on the one hand, there are these best practices in digital marketing that have been evolving for, uh, you know, decades now. And then on the other hand, sort of like any new technology, like you were saying with the automobile versus horses, they sort of introduce these new problems or, you know, they have their own problems that evolve. And so the best quote unquote best practices approach of like creating a lot of really high quality content and trying to continuously amplify or go back and update that content for freshness really puts all of the emphasis on one page at a time. Mm-hmm. which is kind of how humans think, I right? It's hard for us to think about lots of things at once. Sure. Just finite memories and whatnot. But so there, there, that problem being interesting to me, coupled with seeing that the best practices weren't really working, may, and, and trying to think about what we're ultimately trying to do, which is get users to our website, and provide them with such an experience that we're helping them on the path, of, you know, helping them pursue the purpose that they're on our website to pursue. And in the process, you know, increasing our bottom line. And can those two things find some harmony? Hmm. And so I think when that's the, the first principle, then the website as this really important centralized marketing engine that curates your expertise and it curates your offers, you know, free and paid. And it does a really nice job of helping people accomplish whatever they're trying to, whatever they're on your site to accomplish seems to be the goal to me. And as Google really tries to tighten up on, you know, the fire hose of traffic that they have coming through, to, to keep more of it for themselves, the first impression that a user has on your website just becomes that much more important. So, and, and your ability to retain them or get them coming back becomes so much more important because um, those interactions just matter more and more and more. And so it seems like the whole world's sort of running in one direction of let's create more content and try to get it outperforming competitive content, which is, which is quite similar. And, you know, let's optimize for what's the next best piece of content we can create that will have the the lowest cost and the highest return potentially. And let's instead, yeah, like try to boil it down to what we're ultimately trying to achieve and start from there. Beautiful. Thanks. That's that almost sounds like a manifesto. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for pu- like pulling that out of me because I hadn't really, I hadn't thought about it. Well, I'm I'm always curious how those kinds of whether we've made them explicit to ourselves or not to our audience or not. I'm always curious how those kinds of um, I don't know framing assumptions or foundational beliefs or little miniature worldviews even. Um, connect everything else we're doing in our business. So thank you for sharing that. We are either at the starting point for a two-hour uh, segment <laughs> exploring what you just said, or 
uh, at the end of the conversation, which is, I guess I'm going to go for the latter, even though I don't want to. So, uh, Jim, I'm curious, as you're working, as you're trying to, you know, you and I have unruly minds, <laughs> as you're trying to get that unruly mind to focus on something, do you uh, listen to music or not? I do not. Okay, that helps yeah. to not have music. Uh, I don't know if it helps. I think... Um... But that's that's the mode you're working in now. No music. That's the mode I'm working in. Yeah, I I try not to have distractions. Um, okay. And and not that music would be distracting. I could listen to instrumental music. It just it doesn't even uh, occur to me to to turn it on to work. What help? Yeah. So what helps you get things done in lieu of, you know, music, instrumental or not? The the main thing that I figured out that helps is identifying like what types of energy I have at different times of day. I think there's a book about it. I did not read the book, but uh -huh. I actually heard it on, I want to say like a podcast with Rochelle Moulton okay. where she had kind of expressed that. And so I, I looked into it and I sort of self-reflected there and definitely the first four hours of work for me are the best um, and probably the first two. And so just being really careful and intentional about, what I decide to do with those two hours, those two to four hours is, yeah, I think what, what kind of frames everything and sets a good pace for me um, to get some momentum throughout the day. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for telling your bouncer to let me in to that protected time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no problem. It's a real gift both to me and, and I think the folks who've, who've listened to this. So thank you for that, Jim. Where can people check out the work that you're doing? You could go to my website. Um, it's inboundfound.com. Yeah. And and at inboundfound.com slash emails, you could sign up for my sometimes daily, sometimes monthly email list. And that would be a good way to get the latest for sure. That's great. Jim, thanks for being here today. I really loved talking to you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Philip. I had a really nice time.